0: All right, well, if you would, take out your Bibles with me, and let's look together at Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. We are continuing, of course, our verse-by-verse study of this great letter. Um, Augustine, Luther, Wesley, millions of others brought to salvation through this book that we call the Epistle to the Romans. Romans. Um, It's the first of the epistles in the New Testament for a reason, right? It comes right after Acts. It's the first of the New Testament letters, and it's placed there in the canon, not because it was written first, but because it is of first importance. As Luther called it, Romans is the chief part of the New Testament, worthy of every Christian knowing it word for word by heart. I wonder if you... Know the Book of Romans word for word by heart. Confession I don't. I wish I did. Right now we're focusing in on one of the most well known verses in the book of Romans, Romans chapter ten and verse nine. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, of course, when Paul wrote that to the Roman Christians, they were well aware of another Lord. Uh, It is likely that within the last two years before the Romans received this letter, perhaps even just months or weeks before the Roman Christians received this letter, Emperor Claudius died... And the Roman Empire gained a new lord, a man named Nero. Nero took the throne at the age of 17. Can you imagine being given uh, lordship over the entire Roman Empire at 17 years old? When the Christians in Rome received this letter from Paul, they had no idea who this new emperor of theirs would turn out to be. Uh, At this point, here in the 50s A.D., probably 54, 55 A.D., Christianity is still looked at as kind of a weird cult, kind of a splinter group from Judaism. Um, The Jews had been giving the Roman Empire trouble for years. And so at this point, Christians were often being persecuted, not for being Christians, but because they were connected to the Jews. The ten major waves of persecution... ...that would come under the Roman Empire had not yet begun when Rome received this letter. Nero acted like the emperors before him. He made sure that the son of the last emperor was poisoned uh, so that he would not contest the throne. Uh, But murdering your political rivals was par for the course in the Roman Empire. So that didn't really raise any eyebrows. But as Nero began to show his madness it would be the Christians who suffered. Likely within a decade of Romans 10 being written, the great fire of Rome took place, A.D. 64. And you remember the story. Uh, The rumor began circulating throughout the Roman Empire, and particularly throughout the city of Rome, that Nero himself had set the fire. And so to take the blame off of himself, Nero placed the blame for this fire on a growing group of people who called themselves Christians. Now, people in the Roman Empire were already growing deeply suspicious of these people called Christians. Uh, Pliny, he was a Roman governor, uh, sent a report to Emperor Trajan just a few decades later And he he tries to explain to Emperor Trajan about who these weird people called Christians, who they are. And he says they they meet together before dawn on Sunday. Uh, They had to meet together at dawn because the Roman Empire didn't give you Sundays off. And many of these Christians were slaves. Many of these Christians were under the employ of others. Uh, We had a sunrise service here last week. Uh, For Christians in the Roman Empire, sunrise services were probably the norm for a couple hundred years, that they would meet together for worship before they had to go to work. But this made people suspicious. Why are these Christians meeting together under the cover of darkness? Why are they meeting before the sun comes up? Pliny tells us that when these Christians gather together, they would sing hymns and they would sing them antiphonally, meaning one group singing and then another group singing the way we did while ago with it is well with my soul. He says to to Emperor Trajan, he says, they sing to their Christ as if he is a god. He said that these Christians would then bind themselves by oath, promising that they would not commit fraud or theft or adultery, Then he says that they would come back together at the end of the day. At the end of the day, they would come back together and partake of a meal together, a meal they called the love feast or the Lord's Supper. And for various reasons, Christians only allowed believers to be a part of these gatherings. You can imagine this was largely for the sake of safety, right? It was dangerous to have just anybody coming and and, and being a part of your service and so it only led to more speculation about what are these Christians doing when they meet together in their secret services and have their love feasts together. And then there was the fact that Christians believed Jesus to be God, the only God, exclusively God. In other words, Jesus wasn't considered by the Christians to be one God among the pantheon of gods. Had we believed that, Christians would have never had any trouble with the ancient Romans. Our problem was that we believed in the exclusivity of Christ, that Jesus is the only true God. And all the other gods are shams and frauds. People in the Roman Empire valued tradition. People in the Roman Empire valued history. And to question the gods was to question the very integrity of Rome. The cult of the emperor was a very big deal. People worshipped the emperor as a god in the pantheon of gods. So Christians were called atheists. Not because they didn't believe in a god at all, but because they only believed in one and because they didn't believe that the emperor was God. When the rest of the people of the empire were sacrificing to the various gods, it was the Christians who refused. And therefore, when something went wrong, when the rain didn't come, it was the Christians who were blamed. Every convert to Christianity was another person not praying and not sacrificing to the pagan gods. We know from the amazing accounts written in Acts 19 that in the city of Ephesus, when Paul went there, so many people turned from their pagan idols that it caused a riot because Christianity was hurting the economy. Idol makers liked to get paid. The economy of the city depended on people sacrificing to these pagan gods. And when people turned to Christianity it hurt the economy, there was a riot. Get these Christians out of here. Same thing happened later in a Roman city called Bithynia. Eventually, Christianity had turned so many people away from praying to the pagan gods that Tertullian said, if the Tiber River floods the city, if the Nile refuses to rise, if the sky withholds its rains, if there is an earthquake or famine or pestilence, at once the cry is raised, Christians to the lion." So it was at the beginning of this rising hostility towards Christians that Nero began the first major wave of persecution. And I know you've heard this before, but I'm trying to wake us up. I'm trying to sober us up. Because frankly, here in America, we've been spoiled. And when we think about confessing with our mouths that Jesus is Lord we don't think about that the way many of our brothers and sisters in Christ have thought about it in centuries past and in other parts of the world. It is a costly confession. It is an all or nothing confession. Confessing Jesus is Lord is a lose your job, get disowned by your family, maybe get beaten, imprisoned, or even thrown to the lions kind of confession. Confession. And it has been that way for believers throughout history, and it may be that way again here one day. For some in America, it's already a lose-your-job kind of confession. For some in America, it's already a get-disowned-by-your-family kind of confession. Tacitus says, In order to destroy this rumor, Nero blamed the Christians who are hated for their abominations, and he punished them with refined cruelty. Christ, from whom they take their name, was executed by Pontius Pilate during the reign of Tiberius. Stopped for a moment, this evil superstition, Christianity, reappeared. Not only in Judea, where was the root of this evil, but also in Rome, where all things sordid and abominable from every corner of the world come. In case you can't tell, Tacitus despised Christianity. He thought it was a, a plight on the world. Then, first those who confessed that they were Christians were arrested, and on the basis of their testimony, a great number more were condemned. And before killing the Christians, Nero used them to amuse the people. Some were dressed in furs to be killed by dogs. Others were crucified. Still others were set on fire early in the night so that they might illuminate it. Nero opened his own gardens for these shows, and in the circus he himself became a spectacle, for he mingled with the people dressed as a charioteer, or he rode all around in his chariot." It was in this first wave of persecution that the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter both died, along, by the way, with the Apostle Peter's wife, Concordia. Eusebius quotes a letter stating that both the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter were killed, were killed at the same time. Paul was a Roman citizen. He received the more merciful death of beheading. Peter was not. He died more painfully, being crucified upside down. And we know from other sources how the Romans liked to crucify people in all sorts of different positions just for sport. And so that was how Peter died. As we jump into what will be at least three sermons, unpacking what is perhaps the central doctrine of all Christianity, I simply want to ask you this. What does it mean to you to confess that Jesus is Lord? Is that a light confession for you? Is it just a matter of words? Or do those three words say everything for you? Are those three words your hope and your salvation? Would you be willing to... To give up everything even your very life than to give up this truth that Jesus Christ reigns over all things if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you will be saved we already focused on the second part of the verse last week We asked, what does it mean to believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead? And we saw that that means trusting in the wonderful truth that Christ has done everything necessary for our salvation and that his work has been accepted by God the Father on our behalf. In other words, Jesus completed his mission. Redemption has been accomplished, and now God has shown that to be true by raising Jesus from the dead. He has been raised in order to reign as the God man, He has been raised to show us that He really is who He claimed to be, He has been raised as evidence that salvation can be found through Him. He has been raised as the first human being to experience a glorified new creation type body guaranteeing that all who believe on him will one day also experience that same glorified type body as we walk and dwell with him in a new world. We looked at the second part of the verse first because that's the foundation we would not be confessing Jesus as Lord if Jesus was still in the grave. We would not confess Jesus as Lord if we were not trusting in our hearts that he truly accomplished salvation for his people, fulfilling all righteousness, righteousness, perfectly obeying his Father. God would not have exalted him and given him lordship over all things had he failed in his mission Or had he fallen into sin or to disobedience? The resurrection is evidence numero uno that Christ really has been given the throne of the universe. But now we come to look at what it means to say that Jesus is Lord. And here is the plan. I have five headings that I want us to use as we unpack this glorious truth. Don't worry, we're not covering them all today, okay? But five headings, the fact of Christ's lordship, the nature of Christ's lordship, the character of Christ's lordship, submission to Christ's lordship, and confessing Christ's lordship. And if you didn't get it, don't worry, because you'll hear it again many, many times over the next couple of weeks. So this morning, the fact of Christ's lordship. And the first thing that we have to say here is that we do not make Jesus Lord. God has made Jesus Lord. God has made Jesus Lord once and forever. God raised Jesus up from the dead God gave Jesus 40 days on earth to give some final teaching to the apostles, to commission them to show himself to witnesses as the resurrected Lord, and then God ascended him to heaven, and under the authority of the Father, Christ was crowned as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, where he sits on the throne over all. This morning, in our call to worship, we read from Psalm 24 we read about Christ coming to his throne. The scene is of a great city that is opening its gates to receive its new king. It's a prophetic picture of heaven receiving the Lord Jesus Christ as he left his apostles and ascended into heaven and the gates of heaven swung open. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Jesus Christ came to this earth to do battle with sin. Jesus Christ came to this earth to do battle with Satan and demonic forces. Jesus went into the throes of death itself. And conquered that great enemy. Now, lift up your heads, O gates, lift up, O ancient doors. The victorious champion has arrived. The king went, he conquered, and now he has come to take his throne. And he is on that throne this very moment. This was at the very heart of the message of the apostles. Peter stands before the people of Israel on the day of Pentecost. And what is his message to the people on the day of Pentecost? It is this. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. What did they need to know for certain? That the one they put on a cross has now been made Lord and christ king and savior and and don't miss that because some people talk as if you can have jesus as savior but not as lord you ever heard, heard people talk that way right when you're first saved you take jesus as your savior and then if you really grow in christ you come to the place where you take him as your lord friends that is not the way the bible talks about christ in fact if he's not lord he cannot save It is because he is Lord that he can save. It is because he is the risen, exalted Lord that he is the Christ, the Savior, the Messiah. It is because he is Lord that he has all authority in heaven and on earth, including the authority to raise up gospel preachers and to send the Holy Spirit and to open up eyes and to change hearts and to raise spiritually dead people to life. Christ's ability to save is all based on his position as king of the world the lordship of Jesus was at the very center of Paul's preaching Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 5 we do not preach ourselves but Christ Jesus is Lord so when Paul summarizes his message he summarizes it that way we do not preach ourselves what do we preach Christ Jesus as Lord In Ephesians 1, Paul says, God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Many believe that the statement, Jesus is Lord, was the earliest creedal statement among Christians. It was a personal confession of faith, and when Christians came together, it was a corporate confession of faith. Robert Mount says, Jesus is Lord, was the earliest single-clause Christological confession of primitive Christianity. And George Ladd says, the heart of the early Christian confession was the lordship of Christ. And in a very real sense, this remains the central tenet that unites all Christians around the world today. It's the song of the redeemed rising from the African plain. It's the song of the forgiven drowning out the Amazon rain. It's the song of Asian believers filled with God's holy fire. It's every tribe, every tongue, every nation, a love song born of a grateful choir. It's all God's children singing glory, glory, hallelujah. He reigns. He reigns. I like that song. This is the great confession of all God's people. Jesus Christ reigns and so I simply ask you is that your confession is that your conviction is that where you stand on the issue now this does raise a question for some people and it's an understandable question if Jesus is Lord what does the Bible mean when it calls Satan the God of this world In other words, who really is the sovereign over our world if Jesus is called Lord but Satan is also referred to as the God of this world? So the passage is 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Paul says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ, who is the image of God. So, so Paul refers to Satan as the God of this world. So how do we make sense of that? Jesus, Lord, Satan, God of this world. How do we make sense of that? Well, remember that ultimately, this is our father's world. God created the world, and then he created man, and he gave man charge over this world. Man was given dominion over this world. The first rulers of this world under God were us. Okay? God created the world. He set the pattern of six days of work and one day of rest, and then he established those created in his image to be his regents. We were created to be the governors of this world. We were created to care for this world, to be good stewards of this world. We were to rule under God through faith and obedience towards him. And in this way, if we ruled this world through faith and obedience towards God, this world would be a paradise for us. Amazing, seemingly boundless place for us to discover and create from and and enjoy. But there was a usurper in this world, wasn't there? There was a snake in the garden. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, chose to follow the path of Satan and to rebel against God. They aligned themselves with the devil in his revolt against God. And ever since, every human being has participated in that rebellion. God is good. We have followed Satan in a revolution towards evil. When we say that Satan is the God of this world, this is what we mean. Human beings, in mass, have been joining the revolution of Satan and are following him. He's not the rightful God of this world. Satan has no rightful authority in this world. The authority he has is simply the authority that people give to him when they choose to follow in his ways. And all mankind has chosen to follow after Satan and his ways. Except for one man. Jesus Christ came to earth to be the one son of Adam who would stand fast in the ways of God and not join Satan's rebellion. And Satan did everything he could to sweep Jesus up into the way of sin. Satan fired his most vicious attacks. He came against Jesus with temptations so forceful that you and I have never known anything so difficult to resist. But Jesus remained faithful to God even to the point of death. And now God has raised this one faithful, righteous son of Adam from the dead and has given him the rightful throne over this world. What Adam was made to be, what we as children of Adam were made to be, rulers of this world, we failed to be by following Satan and his rebellion, but Christ has now been given what Adam originally had, except even more so. Because Christ's authority now is authority over molecules, and over galaxies. So our world has two rulers. One is the rightful ruler, Jesus Christ, and one is the usurper, the rebel, who humanity has chosen to follow after, the devil. And what has Jesus chosen to do since he has taken his throne? Since Jesus took his place as king of kings and lord of lords. What has he done about this? Well, here's what he has done. He has bound Satan. And he has bound Satan in this way. Satan is no longer permitted to deceive the nations to the same degree that he once was. Instead, Jesus has been working through his church to take the gospel to every tongue and every tribe and every nation. And Jesus, in this... Mass of humanity chasing after Satan, living in rebellion. Jesus has been rescuing people out of that group. He's been opening their eyes. He's been snatching them out of the rebellion. He's been changing their hearts and bringing them back to the side of good. If you're a Christian, you have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. Jesus Christ is building his church. He's building his community of the redeemed. And not only has he forgiven us for our rebellion in the past, but he even continues to forgive us for that part of us that still wants to rebel and go back to the ways of Satan. And when Jesus forgives, it isn't just by pretending that we didn't rebel. It isn't by just pretending that we didn't once follow after Satan. No, Jesus went himself to the cross and bore the punishment for us so that we could be forgiven and brought back to the side of God. When Jesus has completed this work, when Jesus has completed his work of rescuing people, redeeming people from every nation, he will bring final judgment on Satan, and he will bring final judgment on all who still follow after Satan. And this world will be made new. And heaven will come to earth. And Jesus will reign with his redeemed people over the new earth forever. You and I will co-reign with him, just as we would have with Adam, had Adam not fallen. Jesus will be the elder brother of this family, and we will share in his charge to rule the world. God the Father will remain the high king over all, and in the new heavens and the new earth, Satan will have no place at all, for he will be continually tormented in that place called hell. So Jesus is Lord. Satan is God of this world in the sense that he is leading a rebellion, but his time is short. His leadership is temporary. His authority is not rightfully his, and Jesus Christ will take it back. Now, we're coming in just a few moments to the Lord's table. The Lord's table. Uh, we're about to take the Lord's Supper. What does that mean? It means that the Lord of the universe is also the Lord of his church. He's also the Lord of his redeemed people, those he's he's saved out of the rebellion. The rest of the world continues to follow after Satan, but Christ has plucked some out of that rebellion. He has saved them. He has brought them to himself as his treasured possession. When we gather like this to worship Christ... Christ is with us by his spirit. Bodily, Christ is in heaven, but by his spirit, Christ is in this very room. When we gather like this, we are the house of the Lord. This is Christ's house. Not not this, but we are Christ's house. This is Christ's table. We take our seats at his table, he is the host. The Lord of glory fellowships with us here. He speaks to us here. That's what's been happening through this whole worship hour. The Lord of glory is speaking to us, his treasured people, right here. And we speak back to him in prayer and in song and in joyful confession. And now as we come to the Lord's table and take the bread and the cup, Jesus is reminding us of what a loving Lord he is. As we take the broken bread, we hear our high king say to us, This much have I loved you. My body was broken for you. And as we take the cup, our high king says to us, This much I have loved you. I have given my blood for you. I died for you. I bore the very wrath of God for you. Rest in my love. Enjoy my love. You are my beloved. That that is at the heart of what the Lord's Supper is about. It is the Lord of glory saying to his precious, redeemed, saved people, you are my beloved. Do you know that about yourself, dear Christian? Are you standing in that truth that you are the beloved of the King of Kings? You are the beloved of the Lord of lords? Don't you dare come to this table if you have not come to the place of truly confessing Jesus Christ as your Lord. Do not come to this table if you are an unbeliever because if you are still living in rebellion, if you are still on the side of the devil, then you make a mockery of this table if you take the bread and the cup And Christ will not let it stand. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians that those who take this bread and cup unworthily eat and drink judgment upon themselves. If you're one of Satan's people, this isn't for you. But in a sense, it is for you. In a sense, it's preaching to you that you don't have to be one of Satan's people anymore. Those who refuse to submit to the lordship of King Jesus by their very lives hurt his good cause. Those who refuse to submit to Jesus make it harder for others to know him, make it harder for others to love him. Unbelievers, by their worldly loves and their worldly priorities, influence their loved ones, their friends, their children, their grandchildren, making it harder for them to bow the knee to Jesus. The person who continues to live in disobedience to Jesus Christ is not only an enemy of Christ, that person is an enemy of humanity. Because you are setting the example that takes people further away from the joy and the peace that they could have in Christ. In other words, there is no middle ground. You are either a rebel against the Lord Jesus Christ or you are a former rebel against the Lord Jesus Christ. You're either an enemy of Christ or you're a former enemy of Christ. You are either lost and blind and unbelieving and living according to your own will or you have been found and you see and you believe and you are submitting to Jesus Christ and seeking to obey him in all things. My question is simply this, which one are you? He is Lord You don't make him Lord. He is Lord. The question is this. Are you submitting to him as Lord? Are you trusting him as Lord? Are you acknowledging him as Lord? Or are you ignoring him as Lord? Rebelling against him as Lord? The fellowship that Christ has around this table with his beloved people is precious. As I take the bread and cup, I am taking in a fresh reminder of who I am, and how safe I am, and how loved I am. Why would anybody resist coming to Christ any longer? Why would you continue to carry your sin before a holy God, knowing that the day of judgment is coming? Why would you continue to live in rebellion against the king of kings, the best king, the noblest king, the, the most glorious, wonderful king that has ever existed why would you continue to rebel against him on the side of Satan when you know you can't win and when those who come back to Jesus find their every sin forgiven and they are welcomed into his love this is why self-examination is so important Imagine the hypocrisy of coming to this table and taking the bread and the cup while at the same time outright refusing to submit certain parts of your life to Jesus Christ. No Christian is sinless. We all have sins that we struggle to overcome. If you're fighting against some sin in your life, don't let that keep you from this table. If you're struggling with some sin and it seems to have a hold on you, but you're warring against it and it keeps getting you, but you're warring against it, you come to this table. This table is a reminder that Christ has paid for those sins and that one day that sin will be gone from your life. Don't let your struggles with sin keep you from this reminder of Christ's love. But if you are not struggling with sin, you're the one I'm worried about. If you are continuing to disobey Jesus in some part of your life, refusing to repent in some part of your life, saying, Jesus, you can have this much of me, but this part of my life is still mine. Well, then for you to come and take the Lord's Supper would be hypocrisy because this is the table for those who have given themselves to Christ as Lord. Lord. The early Christians knew, in many senses, that the Lord's Supper was to put everything on the line. To take the Lord's Supper was to be known as a Christian, it was to be known as a follower of Jesus, and they knew it could cost them everything. Friends, following Jesus might cost you everything. You have no idea what He might call you to do in the future, you have no idea what commands He might bring into your life do you come this morning to the Lord's table with a posture of humility and submission to the King of Kings? As we come to the Lord's table, let us come with conviction. Let us come with faith. Let us come making the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. And let us come with the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord of me. Amen. Amen spring